Father, I thank you that we can trust in you and that when trust comes joy and peace and self-control. When our trust is in you, the evidence of you flows out of our lives, through our lives, into a lost world that doesn't know who or what to trust in. So I pray that today that our joy might be full and complete as we look at the evidence of what the Spirit-filled life looks like, what kind of attitudes the children of the King should have. In Jesus' name, amen. In your note sheets, you'll see a quote from Joseph Aldrich. Joy, as spirit-induced fruit, is an instructive and thought-provoking analogy. It takes time, diligence, patience, and hard work to make an apple tree productive. Fruit is not instantaneous. It is a victory over weather, bugs, weeds, poor soil, and neglect. If the Spirit's indwelling presence guaranteed the presence of joy, then every believer would be rejoicing all the time. We're not. Joy as a way of living is a hard-won victory over entrenched attitudes of apathy, pessimism, doubt, unbelief, and despair. As we dive into this elusive fruit of joy, let me make a statement to begin with. The growing presence of joy is the growing sense of God. Until the sense of God begins to overwhelm my sense of circumstances, joy will not grow in my heart. When my focus is on my circumstances, how I feel, what I think, what I wish would be, when I play comparison games with other people, then I won't have a growing sense of God. And a growing sense of God brings a growing sense of joy. We're in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and the second one mentioned is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We talked about that last week. And joy. Now remember, love is the fruit, but it has nine flavors. And the first flavor of love is joy. Have you ever been at a wedding and seen the joy? Everybody's happy except the father of the bride. <laughs> father of the bride just looks around and says, thought I raised her better than that. Everybody's happy. The couple's happy. I mean, they don't hear a thing the preacher says. The preacher could stand up there and say, repeat after me, I scream, you scream, we all scream ice cream. And then they just, oh yeah, oh, okay, I scream, you scream, we all scream ice cream. And I hate it when they make up their own vows. Oh my gosh. Because the guy always forgets them. Always. The girl has rehearsed theirs. The guy thought about it at 8 o'clock that morning. Uh, I love you. Mean it. And you go to the reception and everybody's happy, especially if there's a lot of cake and a lot of punch, and a lot of goodies to eat. 
Everybody gets happy about that. But in reality, we don't practice joy very well because we don't believe that God is the source of joy. We believe that something outside of God will bring us joy. We, we think it's a new car. And I found out that the joy of a new car ends when you make your first payment. It's great, but on that day, it doesn't matter what day it is. It's all in the system. It doesn't matter what day it is. On that day, the new car smell leaves. It's just gone. And all of a sudden, it smells like bags out of a drive-thru, you know. Uh, I remember a guy that was uh, here years ago. He was on the pulpit committee. He called me. And uh, he went to Jimmy's Hot Dogs and ate hot dogs on the way to the Atlanta airport. I think they had to total that car when he <laughs> dropped off the rental car at the Atlanta airport because they could not get the smell of Jimmy's Hot Dogs out of it. That doesn't bring joy. Oh, if I could eat there, if I could have this, if I could go there, if I could have the ultimate trip, I'd have joy. But that's not what brings joy. And life can steal joy from us. Life can make us lose perspective. You ever lost perspective? You ever needed somebody to come into your life and just give you some perspective? And Because if you lose your focus, you lose your joy. Uh, I, I knew a preacher, and he was a little bit of a hypochondriac. I mean, you know, if, if he got sick, if he got to feeling bad, he'd, he'd just start saying, you know, I need to go see the doctor. I mean, never, like, just take an aspirin, go to bed, and see if it's better in the morning. He was a little bit of a hypochondriac, and he was whining to his wife one day about, uh, you know, oh, it's just this and it's this. I feel like I got this. and You know, whatever, whatever drug was being advertised on TV, he had that problem, you know. It, it just was, and she just looked at him and said, oh, hush, and die like a Christian. You can lose perspective. See, joy isn't the absence of problems. Life is hard. Joy's not the absence of problems. It's not the favorable circumstances every day of your life. I love what Tim Ritter says. Cultivating the presence of God is the only way to transcend tribulation. Cultivating the presence of God is the only way to transcend tribulation. Now, there's some joy robbers. Now, oftentimes, there are translations that will say about the Beatitudes, blessed or happy are those. That word for blessed or happy is different than the way the world thinks about happiness. In fact, the word happiness comes from the word hap, which means luck. It's just, I'm lucky that I'm happy that's worldly happiness, but Jesus said you're blessed, eternally happy, spiritually happy, if you have these things. And when he's talking about the blessed person in the Beatitudes, most of those circumstances are not good circumstances. They're in the midst of tough lives. And yet he says we're blessed if we think this way. Happiness is external. Joy is internal. Worldly happiness is based on circumstances. Biblical happiness and joy is built on Christ. And there are some things that rob us of joy. Let me just give you a few. And we could make this list a lot longer. Number one is guilt. If I'm living with guilt because I'm not confessing sin, then that'll steal my joy. Guilt weighs heavier than joy does. 
Secondly, fear. Fear robs us of joy. Uh, I'm afraid to trust anybody. I'm afraid to do anything. I'm afraid to go anywhere. I'm afraid to, to, to do this, to go there, to, to try that. We, we build up these barriers and we think, if I can control my fear, I'll be happy. But fear is really controlling us. It's fear. Fear keeps us from doing the things we should do and could do and maybe even want to do, but we're afraid to do it because we're afraid we'll fail. Anger. Anger obscures our view of God. If I live with anger, then I won't have joy because even when I want to be joyful, that anger will kind of seethe up inside of me and it will tear me apart and take the joy out of my life. Discontentment. Discontentment. Discontentment comes in a society where it looks every, like everybody's got what you want. Everybody has what you want. And we forget that contentment is in the little moments of life. That life finds its meaning in the little things, not always in what we have. It is the fact that you got up and you're breathing this morning. That there should be joy in that. Despair. When I lose my sense of purpose and I despair, and when, when that thought hits my mind, my best days are behind me. Now life can do that to you. But if you're a believer, your best days are not behind you. Your best days are ahead of you. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's going to be a day when the best day of your life is the day you see Jesus. So your best is not behind you. But we can have despair when we think life has lost its meaning. Suffering. Suffering can steal our joy, especially long-term suffering. The ancients said that grief is a constriction of the heart. That when we grieve, our heart is constricted. And, and suffering and grief are often tied together. We grieve because we think there's no way out of this. We grieve because we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. We grieve because something didn't work out the way we wanted it to. And it steals our joy and we begin to focus on our suffering rather than on our Savior. Selfishness. Selfishness can steal our joy because we'll be so consumed by what we want or what we think we want or what we think we need that we will selfishly destroy ourselves and our families, our health, to try to attain to something that's not attainable. And when you get there, it's not enough. John D. Rockefeller is one of the wealthiest men that ever lived in the history of the world. And they asked him one day, late in his life, how much money does it take to be happy? And he said, a little more. A little more. You see, it's never going to be enough. If we live selfish, self-centered lives, what we have is never going to be enough. Because the world is going to tell us, be dissatisfied with what you have. Get more. It'll make you happy. You don't have to make payments until 2022. But guess what? By then, it's not worth anything. 
Now you're paying payments on stuff you wish you could get rid of. Why? Because selfishness says, I see it, I want it, I have to have it. Resentment. Resentment of others will steal your joy. Resentment leads to unforgiveness and bitterness, and it destroys relationships. I can resent somebody for who they are, for what they have, what they have that I don't have, for something they did to me, or I think that they did to me, and it can lead to a root of bitterness in our lives. Physical problems. We are body, soul, and spirit. But what affects one affects all. If you are not feeling well in your body, it can affect your soul and your spirit. Your, your bones can ache and groan. Your body can hurt and be racked with pain. And before you know it, just the physical wear and tear of life begins to take you down. And somehow, in some way, that's why some folks, as they get older, get bitter and lose their joy that they once had, and they focus on what they can't do rather than what they can do. And they begin to think, but I can't, and I can't, and I can't, and I can't, rather than thinking, but God has left me here for a reason. Maybe it is to encourage someone else. Maybe it's to strengthen someone else. Maybe I've been left here to become a prayer warrior. I, I don't know why God has left me, but even if I can't do what I used to could do, there are things that I can do. Your body and your soul and your spirit. If you're not careful, your circumstances outweigh your perspective of God. Joy's not a feeling. It is a sense of love applied to life. To take great joy in the fact that although you didn't deserve it, God loved you enough to send His Son to die for you so that you can have life in Christ. Nothing about us deserved it. God didn't look at us and say, man, you, you folks are so awesome. No, it, but it was for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross and despise the shame. That's what Hebrews says. It was joy for him because he knew that in dying for you that you could live for him by his power. You see the quote by Charles Lowry in your notes. Joy is like a well containing sweet water. It's not enough to know the water is there. It's not enough to even dig a well down to the water. The usefulness of the water is when it comes up and is used in somebody's life. You see, if you've been saved, the fruit of the Spirit is in you. But sometimes it stays buried in many of us. Number two, observations on joy. Let me give you a definition of joy. Joy is an attitude, a disposition, a deep, settled confidence that a loving Heavenly Father is in control of the details of my life. It's an attitude. It's a disposition. It's a deep, settled confidence that God is in control of the details of my life. Now in your notes, you see uh, 
several words in Hebrew and in Greek that deal with joy. And I want you to see them because the, just looking at these words tells me that a Baptist did not write the Bible. Okay? This is right here. That's all you got to do. Just look at what these words mean, and it'll tell you a Baptist didn't write the Bible. The first word means bright and shining. You know what it looks like up here sometimes? I can kind of scan the room, and there are people in here. Come on, preacher, say something to make me smile. Listen, Jesus can't make you smile. I can't help you. Bright and shining. It's a disposition word. I choose to have a disposition of joy. That's a choice. The second word is one that is also used in Acts chapter 3 for leaping or jumping. Now, I know that a Baptist didn't write that. Pentecostal may have written that, but I know that a Baptist didn't write that. Listen, I'd like for some people just to stand up. Some of us, it wouldn't matter if it was the hallelujah chorus sung by 100,000 angels. At the end of the song, we're just going to sit there and go, that's pretty good. <laughs> Listen, if you've been set free, there are just some times you want to leap a little bit. Now, some of us have white man jump. <laughs> we can get about two inches off the ground. That's our jump shot. But it's a, it's, a, it's a leaping and a jumping with joy. The third one is exuberant expressions or shouting over God's saving work. I mean, we just get excited about the joy that God has changed our lives. The fourth one is moving around in a circle. Joy can't stand still. Joy can't stand still. It has to celebrate. Now... Sometimes God is pictured as, well, there's the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New. But you cannot read the festivals and the feasts and the celebrations and not realize that there was joy among the Jewish people. There's nothing. I mean, we've had birthday parties for our girls. There is nothing like a bar mitzvah in Jerusalem at the Western Wall. Nothing like it. I mean, you can hear the celebration coming from three blocks away. I mean, when, the, when it time, comes that special time in that young man's life, when he gets to hold the law of God for the first time, the Torah, and they walk him down to the western wall and he carries these massive scrolls out. There are horns playing, there are tambourines, moms are dancing, friends are clapping. I mean, they got video crews. They're going crazy because this is a big moment for this young man. And it just fills and ricochets off of those walls, off the western wall. It ricochets off those stone floors. And you can hear it forever. Why? Because there's joy in this moment. There's joy in this moment. Now, Israel does something I think America ought to do. Every young person in Israel has to serve in the military. Teaches them discipline. They have to learn the history of the nation so they know what they're fighting for and what they're dying for. Now we just give them the next PlayStation. And they play at war. And then when war comes, they don't know why they fight. But I've watched this. No, I've never seen at Bar Mitzvah, and we've probably seen 15 or 20 of them. I've never been to a Bar Mitzvah where the mom and dad said, stop, stop. We don't want to celebrate because in eight years our son's going to have to put on a uniform. 
You see, you can always worry about the future or you can live in the joy of the moment. Joy. Celebration. Now, there's some Greek words. There's some Greek words. All the students just freaked out when I said everybody should serve in the military. Uh, I didn't ever like the pastor. He's just so mean. <laughs> the Greek word, first one is a loud public expression of joy in worship. How many of you missed that one? A loud public, a loud public expression of joy in worship. I wish the choir would just be a little softer. <laughs> a community of joy, an atmosphere of joy is the second word, that there's an atmosphere of joy. Have you ever walked into some rooms and been around some Christians where it looked like all they'd been doing is drinking vinegar for the last week? It's an atmosphere of joy. It's not worked up, it's prayed down. That there's joy in the Lord. Then the charis, which is also the word for grace, here's what it means. The church is to be a community of joy in a world of sorrow. The church is to be a community of joy in a world of sorrow. When people walk into church, they ought to see joy, not because everything's working out for us. There are people in this room on the prayer list. They've got some major issues they're dealing with. But it ought to be a community of joy in a world of sorrow because we know the one who has the answer. The joy, the church is to worship with joy. To worship with joy. You, you, listen, if you're waiting on this stage to be filled before you worship, you've waited too long. You and I bring our worship with us, and if you're not worshiping, I can tell you, it's a flag over your head saying, I hadn't done it all week, I'm not going to do it now. The joy of worship, the celebration of worship, the church is to serve with joy. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do, you, we serve with joy. I've watched the guys out in 100 degree heat driving those carts, taking people to their cars, and they look happy. Hey, come on, get your kids on here. Man, I've been to some churches where it's like, could I see your identification, please? I've walked in some places where you just wondered if anybody knew anybody in the church and how long they had been on this silence vow. Could, could, I, could I have a bulletin? Can, can you tell me where the restrooms are? How about your preschool? We serve with joy. Guess what? We're either going to pass or fail on that Wednesday night at the block party. We're going to stand around and talk to each other. Man, it sure is hot out here. Oh, man, I tell you what. I don't know why we're doing this. I tell you why we're doing it for others. That's why you serve. You serve for others, not yourself. We serve with joy. The church is to joyfully engage a lost world with good news. We joyfully engage a lost world with good news. 
In the Gospel of Luke, the angels at the birth of Christ said, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, I, I love comedians. Uh, Terry, Terry and I just bought tickets to see John Christ in uh, September. I love his videos. I, I, he is hilarious. That boy was raised in a church, and he knows how dumb we are sometimes. I mean, he, he just gets it. You, you, don't do it now. You do it now, ushers have tasers. But when you get home, just look up John Christ and look at VBS volunteers or mission trip. And you'll laugh. I'm telling you, you'll laugh because he, he knows how we act. I love comedians. I grew up listening to comedians. My favorite comedian growing up was Flip Wilson. I love Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson was hilarious. One of the funniest off-the-cuff kind of guys I've ever heard in my life. I, I just, I loved, I, I collected. Right? I mean, listen, my, my spectrum of humor runs from Homer and Jethro to Flip Wilson. I mean, that's how far it runs. For those of you that don't know who Homer and Jethro is, I'm sorry. You, you'll get it later on. But one of my favorite comedians was Irma Bombeck. Irma Bombeck shared this story in one of her books about what happened to her in church one Sunday. She said, I was intent on a small child who was turning around and smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling, spitting, humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about, and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a theater off-Broadway, she said, Stop that grinning! You're in church! <laughs> and tears started to roll down the child's face. Irma said, We sing about joy, but our faces aren't very joyful. Our faces reflect the sadness of one that has just buried their rich aunt who left everything to her pregnant hamster. <laughs> Suddenly I was angry. It occurred to me that the entire world is in tears. And if you're not, then you'd better get with it. I wanted to grab this child with a tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God, the happy God, the smiling God, the God who had to have a sense of humor to create the likes of us. I wanted to tell him he is an understanding God, one who understands little children and who turns around and smiles in church, and even curious little children who rummage through their mother's handbags. I wanted to tell that little child that I too had, been had taken a few lumps for daring to smile in an otherwise solemn religious setting. If that child couldn't smile in church, where was there left to go? C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Proverbs 17, 22, a cheerful heart is good medicine. A cheerful heart is good medicine. Jesus said, you're going to have troubles. Paul talked about his troubles, but Paul said, rejoice. 
In fact, he didn't just say it in Philippians. He said it in 1 Thessalonians, that we were to rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. You read the, the Bible, and there are plenty of problems and troubles and trials. You read Hebrews 11. Some got delivered, some didn't. Some were tortured. You see, following God doesn't give you a hall pass on pain. It just doesn't. There's, there's no such thing as if I follow God, I'll never hurt. I'll never have pain. I'll never have sorrow. I'll, I'll never have moments when I wonder where God is. It does give you the power to face it. You see, the Bible teaches not prosperity, but riches in Christ. And I am to claim my riches in Christ. And one of the riches I have in Christ is joy. The joy of the Lord. We all face problems. Anybody in here doesn't have a problem, I'd be glad to turn over a pulpit to you. <laughs> I mean, we all face problems. But I know people, and I've been here a long time, I know people that have got more problems than some people that think they've got all the problems. And yet they have joy. Amen. They have joy. I remember a guy, most of you don't know, Pearl. I mentioned Richard to you this morning. I remember Richard Vickers after he had brain surgery. And we got a video of him in worship in our old building. And we were singing, and there was Richard Vickers who had cancer and had surgery. He didn't have long to live with his hands up in the air praising God. And behind him were people with their arms folded. And my first thought on that Sunday, which has never left me, is that man knows Jesus. And his joy is not out of his circumstances. His joy is in the Lord. You see, people that don't have joy, their joy is in their circumstances. And they're just waiting for circumstances to get better. Well, when's it going to be better enough? When's it going to be good enough? When's it going to be what you want it to be? may never get there. So you just never have joy. God says that he is there for us in physical problems. Psalm 31, verse 10. With people problems. Psalm 33, verses 11 through 15. With sin problems, Psalm 38, verses 3 through 8. With financial problems, Psalm 40, verse 17. With end of life problems, Psalm chapter 6 and verse 5. Layman Strauss said, Someone has said that the word rejoice is the standing order of the Christian. Whatever else the Christians, early Christians were told to do, the exhortation to rejoice headed the list. So I want to make some suggestions to you in these closing moments. Number one, we make the choice to rejoice. That'll be easy to remember. Jack Taylor says you make the choice to rejoice and you have the gratitude attitude. We make the choice to rejoice. James said, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Count it all joy. When? When the trials are gone? No. When you are encountering various multicolored, multifaceted trials. In other words, there's just all kind of stuff going on. Count it joy, knowing that it produces endurance. Why? It's the appropriate response of the heart that has been saved by God. We count it joy. Our joy is a decision based on the promises of God. Joy is believing the promises. He he didn't just say count it some joy. He said count it all joy. What is Satan? He's a joy stealer. He tries to steal your joy by getting you to focus on your circumstances. For getting you to focus on things you can't fix or things you can't change. So, you make the choice to rejoice. Secondly, and I want you to turn to Psalm 16, because I just believe some of you need Psalm 16 today. I, I don't know why, but I think you do. Joy is practicing the presence of God. You see, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Joy is practicing the presence of God. If I am practicing and living and abiding in the presence of God, then when life begins to pull at me and push me and knock me down, I can draw on a reservoir of the joy of the Lord. Psalm 16 and verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What the psalmist would say, what we should say is, Jesus is alive, he's alive in me, and he is my source of joy. You see, we need to stop looking at the problems and start focusing on the promises. Because we can all share our problems. I've, I've told you before through the years, we had a lady that worked at my dad's drugstore, and I was under strict orders with my dad, don't ever ask her how she's doing, because she'll tell you. Quit focusing on the problems and focus on the promise. But the problem is so big, promises are bigger. Problems can change. They can go away. They can disappear. They can linger, but they're not going to last for eternity. The promises of God are eternal. Joy is cultivated. It is cultivated. When Paul said rejoice always in Philippians 4, Then he started telling us how to think. That's cultivating the right mindset. Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. In other words, cultivate, till up your heart, the soil of your heart, and plant in it seeds that are worthy of things to think about. You see, if all you're thinking about is what you read from the world, then that's what's going to grow. 
That's what you're cultivating. But if the seed of the word is going deep into the soil of your heart, then you're cultivating it. You're nourishing that. That's the last thing. Joy is nurtured. Joy is nurtured. Now, how do I nurture joy in my life? I know it's cultivated, which means I've got to work at tilling up the ground, getting it ready. You cannot pass by any field of any farmer and say that all just happened. He went through with a tractor. He plowed it up. He planted the seed. He's watered it. He watches it. He deals with the disease, with the bugs, with everything else. Prays for rain, the right amount of rain. And then he nurtures it along so it can produce the most possible fruit. We do it by remembering the promises of God. But can I suggest some other ways that we nurture it? We nurture joy in prayer. We nurture joy in prayer. That's why if you took the acrostic of Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, adoration, you nurture joy by adoring the God who gave you joy in your heart. Just telling God how much you love him. Thanking him for his attributes. You do it in prayer. You do it in worship. You see, you may sing really well in the shower, not so hot when you get to church. But there's nothing like being with a body of believers to nurture joy. You can be downtrodden. This could have been the worst week of your life. But if you sit by the right person, all of a sudden joy begins to lift the burdens off of your life. And you start thinking, man, God is good. Bless the Lord. See, some of you had a problem this morning with the first song because your week has stunk. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. You get it by worshiping with other people. You get it by sitting in a, in a small group Bible study because you're there with other people. You're sharing life with other people. You get joy by nurturing, serving, not being served, but serving. You know who's going to have the most fun in this church this week? The people that are serving and sweating on Wednesday night. They're going to have the most fun. They're going to meet new people. They're going to meet people that don't know anything about this church, don't know what we believe, where we are. They just know we take up land. That's all they know. And they live in our neighborhood. And the people that are going to have the most fun are the people that are serving and meeting those folks. And introducing them to a body of believers that are seeking all we understand to know and to love God. You do it by hanging around with joyful people. I mean, listen, I've got members of my family. I had an aunt in particular. She had the spiritual gift of grumpiness. I mean, she was discontented about everything. She walked on her lip. She was always, I mean, just getting around her would suck the life out. I mean, Norman Vincent Peale would have gone to counseling if he'd have been around her very much. Zig Ziglar would have taken some medication if he'd been around her. I mean, she was terrible. And so I just realized when we had family events, I didn't go around Aunt Hazel. Aunt Hazel will sit on the couch and pout all she wants to. I'm going to go out and ride my uncle's horse. 
which might throw me, but it's been better to have been thrown by a horse <laughs> than to sit by Aunt Hazel. That's in Proverbs somewhere. I don't know where it is. Joy. Jesus, others, and you. Now, I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. We're going to do something, okay? With the invention of cell phones and cameras on our phones, now we have selfies. And so, you know, you always have some, well, Haley is the one that takes the pictures in our families. When we're, when we're all together, Haley's the one that takes the picture. Now, here's what happens when we, here's what happens when the four of us take a selfie. Dad, duck your head down just a little bit. That, that, squeeze in a little bit more. Y'all sque- squeeze in. Squeeze in a little bit more. A L- little more. Squeeze in. And so when we take it, this is the first thing I hear from both girls. Don't post that picture until we approve of it. <laughs> Am I right? Aaron wants to make sure it looks good. Haley wants to make sure the lighting is perfect because she's a photographer. And this is what we always hear. Now, bear witness with This is what we always hear. Mom, don't close your eyes. Dad, try to smile. I can't smile because when I'm with them, I'm paying for everything. You want me to smile? Pick up the check. Glory to God. A miracle has happened in our midst. But think about it. Who's the first person you look at in a selfie? You. You look at you. You don't look at anybody else. You just want to make sure you look good in the selfie. Joy. It's an old acrostic. Jesus, others, and you. Jesus first. Others second. You last. You'll be a lot happier. A lot happier.